0: Imagine being a captain of a billion dollar US Navy ship with some 400 young sailors under your command. Lots of habits to form, disciplines to instill, and curiosity and courage to awaken. Talk about raising the next generation. My guest today, Ralph Janikowski, shares many engaging stories of how he's effectively shaped character-informed biblical ethics on board his ship, and many of those same principles he uses now as he leads a K-12 classical Christian school. So regardless if you're commanding a warship at sea, a classroom at school, or a family at home, this podcast is for you. Mountains, we all face them as we seek to influence the next generation. Get equipped to conquer the challenges, summit the peak, and shape exceptionally thoughtful, compassionate, and flourishing human beings. We call it Ancient Future Education for Raising the Next Generation. Welcome to Base Camp Live. Now, your host, Davies Owens. Well, it's my privilege to have on the line Ralph Janikowski. How are you, Ralph?
1: I'm doing great. Thanks, Davies. It is
0: so good to be with you. We were joking before. This is We have literally been talking for years about having you on Basecamp, and it's finally happened. I'm so excited. Um, I had the privilege a couple years ago of getting to visit you there at Westminster Academy in Memphis, where you're the headmaster. You've been there how long now? Six, seven years? What? This
1: is my sixth year.
0: Sixth yeah. year. Okay. And then before that, you were about a... 10 years, I guess, as the upper school principal there at Rock at Rockbridge in Maryland. Is that right? Yeah,
1: exactly right. Yeah, I had, I had retired from the Navy and went directly into being the upper school principal of 34 high schoolers.
0: Oh, my goodness. All right. I got this. Your story is, is so compelling to me. I don't know anybody as a headmaster, head of school that had your background. Most of the time, folks that are in that role, went an educational path or they were on the board and they ended up, I mean, you have a very unique journey and you could have gone many other places, but you ended up in a classical Christian school. So I just have to, let me just share with folks kind of where you, where Ralph has been before taking on yeah. Westminster. You, you graduated with distinction of, from the Naval Academy. Then you got a master of arts and strategic studies at the national war college graduated as a top Naval officer in your class. And then you went on to command, uh, the, um, spruance class destroyer and an aegis cruiser you've been you were chosen as a this is amazing one of only 12 from a pool of thousands of candidates so you were you were quite uh, successful uh in the navy you're eventually responsible for over 400 soldiers uh piloting a billion dollar ship um, sailors
1: sailors, sa- sailors.
0: Oh, what did i say okay yes <laughs> <laughs> whatever they are sailors yes um chief engineer in the uss virginia commanding officer of the uss hewitt and then commanding officer of the uss princeton um these are huge responsibilities and then uh, along the way i have to ask this question you were also a surface nuclear officer community manager which sounds like a really good title for an upper school dean surface (laughs) nuclear officer community manager but (laughs) all that to say uh even had an op- a season as director of I guess Navy program analysis and budgeting at the Pentagon. So Ralph, you could have gone anywhere, you could have done anything, and then you journeyed into a classical Christian school. What was going on? How did you make that decision?
1: Yeah, Davies, it's uh, it's a uh, it was a process that I really felt the Lord led me through. But uh, when I was starting as a chief engineer and then as an executive officer in both my command tours, I interviewed every sailor that came on board uh, the ship. And, and I would look at their service record to learn about them and then talk to them. And, and I, I became stunned after a while at the similarity of bright young men and women coming to the Navy who had not been successful in high school or in college or in business or in anything. And, and, and I, I couldn't understand that. Now, many of them came from, uh, two-parent homes. Some came from broken homes. Uh, most of them claimed to be Christians, uh, but weren't attending church. And and so they were in many respects at the age of 21, 22, joining the Navy to try and put their life together. They had gr- gotten done with high school and for three, four years, been drifting. And so they get into the Navy and they come to us. And, and they come on board, and so I sit down with them, and I talk to them, and, 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 and they were excited, but they were fearful. And as I talked to them and reviewed those records, what became apparent to me is they didn't know right from wrong. So here they have gone through our education system, some including some years of college, and they couldn't discern uh what what to do in the moment. And ultimately they, they decided to please themselves. And so not only could they not discern what was right and wrong, they couldn't discern right from almost right, which is always wrong. <laughs> well said. And, yeah. And so and so they they had gotten themselves into trouble and now they're in the military. We have a, a very Easy way of saying this is what's right on one hand, this is what's wrong on the other hand. With the first comes blessings, and with the second comes curses. Now we say it differently, but essentially it's this very structured, ordered environment. And when they saw it played out, uh, it, it fairly and justly and equitably, and that if they did the right things, that they got rewarded and became part of a successful team it was energizing. and 90 to 95% of them turned their lives around. Wow. And it was phenomenal to see that occur. And and most of these young men and women had not been part of a team. And so a well-run warship, like, uh, you know, any unit is a team of teams that do their jobs well at the right time and in the right sequence. As I got thinking about that, education isn't much different. I had been the, uh, Dean of Navy students at, uh, Uh, National Defense University at the Eisenhower College. And and so while I was there, I I got a chance to do adult education and think about education. And so whether you're in, in, in a classical Christian school and you form a team of grammar school teachers or a team of art teachers or a team of history teachers, if you are synchronized and integrated, the children see that They can apply it, and suddenly learning has real meaning. And what I found out is for most of these young men and women, their learning had no meaning. And I think if we go back to the fact that, you know, God's created us to learn a certain way, intellectually, obviously, and physically, you know, we learn and get more uh, coordinated as we grow older. But we're also developing, and I would argue a trivium way, uh, theologically, and social and emotionally. And most schools give up on those. They can't teach theology. They don't wanna teach how to act and behave, in other words, how to interact with people. And and so what ends up happening is I would argue they deform young men and women by not completing the education that biblically is required, the spiritual education and the social emotional education. We at classical Christian schools can do that. And to see kids grow holistically where the academics is, is, is important and part of it, right. but these other areas get addressed as well, uh, create the sort of ethical person that I think is so important to today's society.
0: And so just in that, as you've articulated, of any choice you could have made coming out of your very successful career, you saw classical Christian schools as the most effective arena in which to make these life changes in young people. I mean, this is, this is the best place
1: absolutely and and I think there's a lot of military officers who if if presented with the opportunity to go teach at the classical Christians can do that first off they've got their military retirement which helps them the bottom line for a school <laughs> but secondly that this idea of ethics and teamwork and virtue you know in the Navy honor courage and commitment are our values. Uh, so it resonates with folks from yeah. the military, and and I found there were a lot of Christians in the military that I, that I found real fellowship with. And so when I got done with my time in the Navy, I had, when I was on Princeton, it was during Iraqi freedom, and so I was underway 19 of the 24 months I was in command, which meant my family was getting uh, educated with my wife in charge. I, I, they had experiences of friends that I really didn't participate in, and then I went to the Pentagon a very important job but again it was one of those uh, you know you're putting in your your 70 80 hour week and and I said to myself I suddenly the navy's no longer fun and what I miss in the pentagon is being with young men and women who I could have an influence on where could I go do that and I saw Rockbridge Academy where my daughters were at that point in time as sort of the ideal place. And mm-hmm. the headmaster of time, Mike McKenna, uh, said, I need help. I'm the only administrator, please. And I said, I'd, I'd be delighted to do that. Yeah. And so I went there. and never looked back. Mm-hmm. And, and for the first five years, while I still had all my clearances, I used to get all these phone calls, come work for us, come work for us. As soon as my clearances expired, all that stopped. <laughs> and, uh, I was pleased that it did because I loved what I was doing, helping young men and women in the high school and the upper school and think about things that they want to think about, that they're designed to think about and we just need to expose them to them. And when you can integrate those things together across subjects uh, for them, they get to see excitement and learning and love of learning really play out in the classroom to me is just really energizing.
0: Well, you're, you're, experience, I think, again, on on board a ship with these 400 uh, functionally students. I mean, you had basically a floating yeah. classroom you were running out there. Um, a lot of what we hear, I think, as parents, as educators, a lot of lofty language. You go to an open house talk or a back to school night. There's a lot of language we use about pursuing the true good and beautiful and forming of habits and, and uh, information. Th- those are all the right words. I think you know what? What I think often happens is a gap between what we are, we know we want to do and how do we do it. And so I really want to explore with you, uh, you know, as a focus of this podcast. And really, what were you actually doing to 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 form those habits and to create um, a changed life with a very clear and defined direction, different from where they, where they started from? I mean, it's really again a similar process. But I want to. You said something a moment ago. I want to back up just a second, which I thought was fascinating. As as the captain of this ship, and again, I'm, I am—I don't have—I've not firsthand experience of this, but I was thinking of someone who's commanding the ship is having fairly little interaction with the average officer coming on board, and yet I am hearing you say you literally found time to effectively interview every individual and, and get a sense of who they are and where they've been and where they want to go. Is that was that unique in that you did that, or is that fairly common? Because it seems like a very effective way to understand who, you, in fact, you are trying to serve.
1: I think more and more captains were doing it because it just seemed to, to help so much. The other thing is, is, as the captain of the ship, I was one of the rules of Navy is you could eat by yourself in the cabin. They'll bring your food up to you. And I wouldn't do that. I always went down to the wardroom where the officers were and ate meals with, with the officers. I know what mealtime was in my family, a place to talk, to relax, to, to, to bring up issues that came up during the day. And so to be able to be down there and participate with with, uh, with them was important because they needed to get to know me if they were going to present problems to me. And one of the things I learned in the military is, you know, there are problems on ships. I mean, you, you, you have a, a crew of 400, average age of 23 on a high tech machine out in salt water and waves. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> yeah. So things are breaking all the time and and sailors sometimes think well it broke on my watch i'm responsible for it well no that's machinery breaks it wears out it happens tell us so we can do something about it and i'll never forget as a junior officer we were down in rio de janeiro and and i i was the the engineering officer uh, responsible for that duty day and we're trying to get the crew back on board and rio at night is not a place you want to be there's a, like a million street children and, uh, and so it could become pretty violent at night. And so we were trying to get the crew back and the boat, David, broke. And it broke because we'd been listening to it for, for weeks, make noises and didn't do anything about it. And now when we really needed to get the sailors on board, we couldn't do it. And the one David, uh, boat David that did that, interfered with the other one. So now here we have about 55 sailors trapped ashore. We can't get them back on board. So we had to work through that all night long, trying to fix it, get it on. And we were able to do that. And and I just said, why didn't we fix this when we first knew about it? And in so many cases, the same thing is at school. When you have a problem, address it. Don't shoot the messenger. Deal with the problem. and, and, And then your team can come around you and help you with it. So I think one of the things that I... I learned as a captain is I can't solve every problem. In fact, I should solve no problems. I should get the team to solve problems. And we have other administrators. We have teachers all with good ideas who want to help empower them, enable them, have them bring their problems to you. And And then they they enjoy life because they feel as though they're contributing more than just being on their island in the classroom, that they're having an impact on the whole school, which I think is phenomenal.
0: Well, again, I think the term island is what often happens, be it in our families, because we're all running um, in different directions and we hardly have meals together or in schools because the administrative team is so consumed in the operation of the school that they don't even know the names of the kids or when was the last time they even got to drop into the classroom so i i think that at a very basic level before we really get into how you this full process of formation it begins just by do you know the people you're serving are you in their lives <clears throat> do you connect with them on a daily basis which is impressive again especially given something as uh, challenging as a, a billion dollar ship and 400 sailors and and no end of need i'm sure when demand on your time so. Well, and I had to have
1: somebody schedule this for me. Otherwise, I would do what, oftentimes, what, what was on my desk or what was easy to do or sure. email. And so, when it gets scheduled, so right now for me to go do classroom observations, I schedule four hours a week to go do that. Wow! And those are sanctuary hours. Uh, my secretary knows that I for those four hours, I'm not going to be in my office, and she can't schedule anything else. And so it allows me to get around the school while the teachers are doing their thing. And quite frankly, they want me to come in and say, well done, good and faithful servant, because they don't get that kind of feedback from the kids.
0: (laughs) Right. Well, and again, if you think about a process of formation habit training, there's obviously, as you were describing, a very uh, top-down, you set a standard of what it means to be in community, in a team, what the habits and the norms and the expectations are, and then that transfers down to your you know, to your, uh, your, your lieutenants and your, um, you know, your, your team under you. And eventually the, you know, the, the first year soldier that's our soldier, uh, get this right in a second. um, Sailor on the ship is, is, is aware of what the expectations are. So let's talk a bit about, you know, what is that, what the trajectory you have there running a K-12 classical Christian school. When you think of that kindergartner coming in and what you want them to look like going across that graduation uh, line, getting that diploma. What is this framework, this formation that you see? And how practically are you doing that? I mean, again, we've talked about being in their lives, but what does it look like to actually execute it?
1: Yeah, I think uh, age-appropriate virtue can be taught at, at JK K, K very easily. How do you treat one another? How do you love your brother? And and so they can memorize the scripture, but then the teacher can talk to them. You know that let's share. Why do we share? And you know the you know who has it first is not the principal. <laughs> and so we can work through this. Uh, but but the teachers need to know that uh, they can take time to do that sort of training. Um, one of the things we did uh, to start school this year is I was worried that because of the COVID that we you know, masking and following the rules and washing your hands, that your value a human being was determined by how you followed those procedures. And, and in a Christian school, nothing should be farther from the truth. And so we did uh, Paul Tripp's uh, Your Christian School, A Culture of Grace. And it was phenomenal to work through that because he talks about all these age appropriate ways to help children. But a lot of it starts out with the faculty caring enough to to look a child in the face, to invest in them, to know them. And so you need to know your students. You need to love your students. You need to speak into their lives. And lots of times we look at problems as, oh, no, another problem to deal with, as opposed to an opportunity. To, to be, as, as Tripp would say, an instrument in the Redeemer's hands, to be able to bring the gospel to bear. And no one instant is going to make a huge difference. But as you go through the K through uh, 12, 13 years of raining the gospel on them and living in the gospel mist, uh, they have, the kids, I feel like they're in a 13-year monsoon. <laughs> and so when they get done, you know, the, the gospel is part of who they are. And so you got to teach them the theology, hugely important. And so it starts with the memorization of Scripture and J, K, and K. And then as you get closer to 6th, 7th, and 8th grade, you start teaching them basic theology. And then the upper school, teach them seminary-level theology because they're ready for it. Interesting how we can do theology according to the trivium in a way that excites the students. But if it's just classroom head knowledge, it's never any good. you now have to make sure they have opportunities to live that out, the playground, the lunchroom for the grammar school kids in particular. But for the upper school kids, there are three major ways in which we try to play out that theology. And that would be uh, our, our house system with 7th through 12th graders, the protocol, uh, which is essentially teaching the, the boys how to be men and the girls how to be biblical women, and, and then the uh, athletics, and and we've used uh, Joe Ehrman's inside-out coaching. Uh, Joe Ehrman was a really mean defensive tackle for the Baltimore Colts. He ended up, uh, his brother got cancer and died, and it sent him on a journey of faith that led him to Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia to become a PCA pastor, and then he went back to his old school and, and decided to coach, and he saw that most coaching is done transactionally. What's in it for the coach? What's in it for the student? How many points? How many minutes? It's all metrics. And, and real coaching is coaching the heart of an athlete, before you coach the sport. If you coach the heart of the athlete, you're you're doing transformational coaching. And so we've tried to model our our athletic program on Inside Out Coaching by Joe Ehrman. And I if you haven't read it, I commend everyone to go ahead and read that yeah. because it's a Christian way of thinking about athletics. So we we use those things. So you gotta live it out. You got to teach it, but then you have to reinforce it. And so when I'm sitting in the classroom, if I'm in a literature classroom or a history classroom, and that teacher isn't applying a biblical worldview, there's a problem. Because if you teach theology and it doesn't apply in the other classes, what you've taught the child is you can stovepipe your theology and live the rest of the life apart from it. And so I want them to evaluate their books that they're reading using their theology and there's some wonderful books out there. One of the ones, and Davies, you and I have talked about this, is, is Red Bad, or uh, not Red Bad Scourge, but The uh, Mice and Men. Steinbeck, yeah. Uh, yeah, because, you know, at the very end of the book, you know, George comes up behind Lenny and shoots him. And the girls are, are weeping. The boys are trying to keep a stiff upper lip in the classroom. And, and ultimately, uh, they, they come to the conclusion that George had to do it to save Lenny from the lynch mob. And so the teacher's got to say, well, how is shooting him saving him or well, saving him from punishment? And, and so to get the idea across that in the moment is killing a person the right thing to do, or are you playing God? In other words, do you need to do the right thing in the moment and then leave the outcome and the results to God? And, and, and initially, the, I'll tell you, most of the students are going to resent that. And over time, most of the students are going to say, you know, I understand it. This is hard, isn't it? Yeah, Christian worldview thinking is really hard, and they need to do it. So you got to teach theology, but you have to apply it in history, literature, and art, a science to be able to see the beauty of God, math, the order of God. And when all those teachers are talking about it all day long, children go home and go, I had a great day at school today. Do they know why? Some do, but most of them don't. But they, there's this consistency, there's this integration, there's a sense of excitement because it fits together. And so many of my sailors couldn't see that fit together. In fact, we pulled into Pearl Harbor as we're heading off to war, and, and we passed by the Missouri and the Arizona, and they didn't know what those two ships represented. Wow. So, you, yeah, you have these two battleships, and you don't have the Tokyo... Uh, harbor surrender and General Douglas MacArthur aboard. You don't have the Arizona s- sinking with a thousand men on board and they have no idea of it. And so I I kind of made it my my goals. We crossed the Pacific <laughs> to do a history lesson. And so we went by Midway and they see that little island. Yeah, it's one of the seminal battles of World War II. We never heard of it. And then we went over and, and interestingly, Davies, this was fascinating. We had a World War II a coffin, a World War II sailor in a coffin on board that wanted to be buried at sea. And he wanted to be buried in Leyte Gulf, where the uh, CVA-43, the USS Princeton, the previous USS Princeton, had sunk. He wanted to be buried with his shipmates. And so we went there, and, and I said, crew, if you'd like to come up and be a part of this, we're going to film this so we can send it back to... Uh, this man's family, but you have to be in your dress uniforms. I know it's the middle of the ocean. This is not a half the crew got into their dress uniform and stood out there and saluted as we play taps and buried this man in, at sea with his uh, comrades. And there wasn't a dry eye out there. It was one of the most powerful moments. But suddenly history meant something. History should be this wonderful, powerful story. We turn it often into dates and dead guys. It, it should come alive. And and so don't teach everything in history, teach the important things well. Yeah.
0: That's so what a great story, Ralph. And that's exactly the the goal that we say, which is we want to form, and formation again is not just a cognitive, it's it's a tangible uh, real-world experience. So we're going to take a quick break because I want to come back because I know, again, the the ultimate vision you have, is you and I have talked about it many times, and as we look around kind of the cultural moment that we're in, th- these are some dark days. These are difficult days. These students that are graduating have to be real-world ready. This cannot just be, as you talked about, kind of a, a, a siloed stack of information in one side of their being it has to be in all of them so i want to come back and hear a few more stories from you there's a lot of uh real world examples of kind of forming these ethical frameworks both at home and at school what it looks like we'll be right back with ralph janikowski He's worked with families for more than 30 years as a licensed professional counselor and marriage family therapist. It's time for a quick encouragement on the best practices of raising the next generation. We call it a McCurdy moment. So Keith, my wife and I have three children. They're all very different. I don't know how that happens. They come out no matter what we do the same. They all seem to be very different. And so when we look to parenting practices, it seems like we'd have to kind of customize the the parenting uh, around each unique child. Is that a a faulty logic or is that a good idea?
2: Yeah. Well, actually, I think that's driven by uh, current pop psychology and culture. Well, you know where I get my best ideas from. (laughs) And quite a bit of that says uh, that We need to understand the uniqueness of each individual child to know how to parent them effectively. And it's also a very progressive progressive thought idea, the idea that there isn't a singular, singular, transcendent objective truth Mm -hmm. about raising children. And in uh, in my experience, what I find is when parents look at their children, and good heavens, you have three, imagine the family that has five. Um, When parents look at who the child is first, rather than what's the standard of a healthy family first, they end up getting lost. And so what I do is I try to reverse that with parents and say, wait a minute, let's first identify what are the aspects of a healthy family? You know, what is the family identity in a sense? You and I've talked about that in the past. You know, what are the characteristics of being a healthy functioning individual? The place that the uniqueness of the child comes in is once you're going to apply that transcendent truth.
0: So what does that look like? Well, I
2: think you can decide that it's important for our children to be um, uh, uh, contributors in the family. And so you realize, you know, all of our children need to contribute, need to do different things, whether it's chores or obligations or whatever, where the uniqueness of the child may come in is how that's performed. Different children will perform different things differently. They may take to one task and enjoy it over another. And so you take into consideration in those children, gosh, you know, I need to know what's going to be harder for one, easier for the other, but I'm pretty much going to apply it to all of them. I'm going to require them all to be contributors, but I have to understand some things they're going to struggle with in one way versus what another child will struggle with.
0: Yeah, because so much of our parenting is just, I mean, we're in a culture, we're all downstream of this hyper-individualism, and we want them to be their best them and self-discovery and all these things that seem so affirming. But are actually undermining.
2: Right. Because in reality, what we want to teach our children is how to be a good member of the community. Mm. And the community they start in is the family. And so, any community you're going to operate in, to learn to operate healthy in it, you have to say, what are the rules of the community? And so, when we can identify a healthy family environment healthy family guidelines rules whatever our job is to assimilate them to that community Mm -hmm. rather than base everything on on their individualism yeah and they may have individual likes or dislikes but there's still standards of expectation so that's to to operate in a healthy community and that actually is what sets them up to learn to operate in the next community
0: yeah which is what we want when baby bird leaves the nest they need Uh, to be able to fly that's exactly right all right thanks keith Got a question for Keith to answer on a future McCurdy moment? Well, send it to us at info at and learn more about Keith McCurdy on the speaking page on the BaseCamp Live website. Welcome back to BaseCamp. Having a fascinating and and, uh, inspirational conversation with you, Ralph. It's so interesting to hear your journey, which is not typical for most of us uh, being the captain of a ship. Uh, 400 sailors out in the out in the sea. I one thing I you know I'm wondering like what does discipline look like on a ship because I think you know I always think of like do, do they still swab the decks? Is that still like something you do?
1: <laughs> well, it, you know it's interesting. Uh, keeping a ship clean is uh, in living in tight quarters is actually really important, and so we still do things like sweepers and cleaning the yeah. ship and having sailors work through mess duty. Uh, and part of that you say, well, that's below me, except. When you can couch it in the argument of the greater good, this is how we all live together in close quarters. Lots of parallels with the school. Why do you pick up after yourself? Why do you not leave the bathroom a mess? You know those sort of things. I, same conversations I'm having at school, or conversations I used to have with sailors on the ship. <laughs> yeah, because we have to live in community.
0: Well, I mean, yeah, yeah. So do you have them swab the gym floor or something? I mean, that, like, I, it's <laughs> it sounds again. The parallels are, are so. So much there. So, share some more examples because, again, I'm thinking of a parent, a teacher saying, um, I just, I want to, I hear what you're saying. I need to be in their lives and I need to uh, consistently uh, show application and an example of this lived out. I mean, the burial at sea story really exemplifies that, but most of us are not. In, typically, in an environment like that, where we can bring these things alive in such a way. What are some examples of what you've done both on the ship and in the school that might be helpful? yep. one of the one of
1: the uh, the big things uh, is is both at Rockbridge when I was there, outside of d c and Baltimore and Annapolis. And then here in Memphis is there are lots of wonderful things to go to and visit. And so I think sometimes we feel as though we're not in the classroom keeping up with our curriculums, we're not doing our job. And I would argue that that travel is an excellent form of education and for a classically Christian-trained student, they can go out and talk and prepare and enjoy and then bring it back in the classroom and discuss it. And so, you know, at D.C., we would go take advantage of the Smithsonian or go up to Gettysburg or uh, go to Mount Vernon, all those sort of things. And so I I ship all my eighth graders to D.C. to just do that sort of thing. But here in Memphis, we have the National Civil Rights Museum. We have the, 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 the Cotton Museum. 80% of the South's cotton used to flow through Memphis. Uh, back in the 1880s, Memphis had a yellow fever epidemic and unincorporated. And, and so these, and, and so we go to the uh, cemetery here, one of the old cemeteries in the country, Elmwood Cemetery, and they take a tour and they see all these people from the French and Indian Wars who were buried there right up through the Gulf War and, 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 and then some of the, the events, the salt, sinking of the Sultana outside of Memphis with over a thousand using soldiers on it at the end of the war, after the war's over, it, you know, these sort of things. And so you talk about them and you pray about them. And and, and very, very exciting for the students. So we take them to uh, Nashville uh, to go to the Hermitage and to the Tennessee History Museum and the Capitol there. And, and so those sort of, 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 of events that you can incorporate into your classroom, I think, make a huge, so huge history.
0: It's the old... Caught as much as taught. So you, yeah, you, you showed me a story of uh, back on the ship and the Red Sea and and some experiences there. What was that that experience?
1: Yeah, Davies, this was fascinating. We were in the Red Sea as the only U.S. ship there. There was a Tomahawk missile requirement, and we were fulfilling that. And so here we were by ourselves. What do you do for two months as you're sitting in the Red Sea? Well, part of my job then is to is to think of things, and uh, it's, it reminds me of the old cat in the hat. It's fun to have fun, but you have to know how. So here we are, and one of the things we could do is pull into Sharm El Sheikh, which is on the Sinai Peninsula, and they ran tours out to Mount Horab or Mount Sinai, the Mountain of God. And so in the morning we come flying in it. It's you know at, at dawn and we put the boats in the water, we send the sailors ashore in groups of about thirty at a time and they get on a bus, and they drive out there. The The monastery, St. Catherine was there. They explore that, and then they climb up Mount Horeb to where the burning bush was. and 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 so suddenly I have sailors who say they were Christians, had never opened their Bibles, and they're reading Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy to find out what is this Mount Horeb? What is Mount Sinai? And, and writing home and taking pictures. And, and, well, what else is in the Bible? And it, it had this remarkable impact. And, and so we did this for two straight weeks every morning until two-thirds of the crew had done it. I got so tired of going in those sheik, dropping them, coming back and picking them up. Uh, it was exhausting, and it was exciting because I would go down to the boat deck and see them come back. And their faces spoke of people who had had an amazing experience, and now their minds are racing. And and what an opportunity that was! And so one of my officers actually wrote an article for the base newspaper. And so here's uh, in, in in Yokosuka, Japan, the base newspaper has uh, Hewitt USS Hewitt visits Mount Horab and writes this whole article scr- quote scripture in it, and 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 the, the, then then when we're back in Japan after the cruise. Uh, people are asking us questions about it. And wow. so little things like that turn into very big things. And so I really think it, you know, some of the other things we used to do is, uh, you know, we'd uh, uh, we'd have a chili cook off on the fantail. We'd let everyone cook and then we have a tasting. Uh, we'd have a swim call. So doing things to create things. This last year during COVID, well, let's create some fun for ourselves. So we, you know, we couldn't go to the theaters. They're all shut down. We couldn't go to do some of the things we like to do. So I we called Opera Memphis. Hey, would you come and sing here at school? Wow. So they brought their trailer out in our soccer field. They set up this big trailer with speakers, and they do an opera for us outdoors. And we're sitting on a sunny day, and everyone loved that the parents could come to that. And I try and invite our parents and grandparents to everything. And so grandparents have a profound ability to speak into the lives of their children. And whenever I can get grandparents at school to participate in things like this, it, it adds such richness. And and the kids see this generational that the, not only do their parents care, but their grandparents care. And sometimes the children are rather pleased their grandparents than their parents. So it's
0: Ralph, it worked the, out really well. This, this is amazing. And everything you've said, I keep, I, I'm thinking is based on something you did intentionally and really beyond the call of base requirement I mean it sounds like you could have you could have captained that ship never had to think about getting off and taking these tours or having a chili cook off you could have you could have uh, you could have fulfilled your obligation as a leader and never done any of those things but the difference it sounds like that it made in terms of truly forming both the sailors and now the students is intentionality at it often uh, the cost of your personal convenience, your time, uh, other things you might rather do personally. It's a big sacrificial leadership uh, decision.
1: Well, it is. You have to prepare for these events. Uh, you have to publicize them well, and then you have to really invest in them. And you know, in addition, we had the Tennessee Shakespeare Company come and perform Romeo and Juliet for us during a COVID because we could get them, you know, spread out and do something like that in our huge sanctuary here. And, and but we can only fit about 300 kids in this 900 person sanctuary. So Tennessee Shakespeare said, well, we're not doing anything. We'll come three times. We'll pay you three times. Come on in. And so the whole school got to see Romeo and Juliet done by professionals. Wow. And then they go to the classroom and talk about it. Now they want to read Shakespeare. So, you know, these are the sort of things that, yeah, it was a, it was investment of time, but it created a memory. It created also this this sense of community. And so, one of my jobs as a captain now, as administrator, is how do I build intentionally Christian community? It just doesn't happen. You have to invest in it, and and so I think it's so important for our kids to see that there's something different and special about Christian community. You know, people talk about a school being a, a bubble or a fortress or something like that. I think that's the wrong metaphor. I would rather view us as an oasis, where you come and get fed and nourished before you go back out into the world. I want to be a Christian oasis for our families so that they're ready to go into the world, live confidently, be in the world but not of the world.
0: So, And I think that's a great transition as we kind of— um wind down our time i mean obviously the purpose of your cap being a captain of that ship was not just to have chili cook-offs and do historical tours you were a you're a you're part of the defense department to you know protect at all costs i mean there's a very uh very noble and sacrificial and uh, dangerous aspect to what you're doing at sea and i think it's not all that different especially i think you know in the last year six months, six weeks, it just feels like the world is becoming far more dangerous, far more confrontational, far more difficult to stand up for one's faith, to be uh, a leader in any real sense. And so as you kind of look beyond graduation, what do you think, I mean, what are you both, what are your aspirations, which we've talked about, but how do you see when the battle heats up, how are these students that you have guided through a classical Christian journey I want to truly be real world ready. What does that look like played out as a success story?
1: Yeah, I think in part uh, that's a great question, Davies, because we need to be asking that question. We can't just make them good high school students. We, we're preparing them for life. And so we have to give them leadership opportunities, and we have to give them opportunities to, to not be successful, uh, not in a destructive way, But you learn a lot from struggle and failure. You know, Keith McCurdy talks about this all the time about the importance of struggle. We need to let our kids struggle, and particularly in that leadership realm and in the area of organizing and doing things. And so when, uh, you know, it's, it's time to to organize an event like our Vespers, we, we couldn't do a Christmas concert indoors. So we decided to do a Vespers uh, Christmas thing outdoors. And when the kids heard they could do that, they would, wanted to string lights, they wanted to decorate the tables outdoors. We called food trucks in and they could participate in helping this. Uh, and, and I've been so impressed with the, the ability of our, particularly high schoolers, but even the grammar school kids want to get involved and help to do that, let them help, get them involved. And, and they get excited about doing that. And our house system provides all competitions for them to do, leadership opportunities, service opportunities, those sorts of things. And so if you're gonna have a house system, you have to invest in it, you have to give it time, but it's the sort of time that develops uh, the, the idea that Christian community is important. When I talk to our seniors a lot about when they leave Westminster Academy, They, when they go to college, are going to make some really important choices in the first week. Are you going to get up and go to church? And if you don't answer that question, yes, the first week, it gets incrementally harder from then on out. The other thing is you need to find Christian fellowship on a campus. How do you do that? Where do you go? We talk about the groups. Reformed University Fellowship is what my daughters participate in, but there are lots of wonderful organizations on campuses. Find them out. Go and get a part of that. And, and when at church, uh, it's so important for them to get, uh, recognize that, that they're with elderly people, they're with uh, young children. Uh, a college student that spends all his time around 19 to 22-year-olds is not healthy. They need to have that fellowship that occurs in a multi-generational congregation. So we try to prepare them for that. But then we also want them to recognize that, that the church needs them to participate as well, not just to go there but to go and invest. And and so I I think uh, the idea is is that this this education ought to be an education such that regardless of the doors God opens for them, that they can boldly walk through thanking him, glorifying him, and understanding that they have an education that's prepared them to be able to change as the future comes. I mean, I've had two jobs in my life, a naval officer and now a uh, head, you know, administration at a classical Christian school. Most people are going to have many jobs, and the ability to think, the ability to apply Scripture, the ability to, to own your heart and live it out is is such a blessing. And, and I think our grandparents recognize this. Mm. Our parents are beginning to recognize it ever more. And the teachers love it when they see this happen. And I, when our alumni come back and they want to go see their kindergarten teacher, That is amazing to me because they remember the kindergarten teacher. They remember some of the things that happened. Why is that? Because those experiences are so formative because we're, we're touching their hearts. It's not just their heads. We care about the whole person. And that's what gets me up. I love coming to work.
0: I can tell (laughs) Ralph. I can tell you are, you are a, uh, your zeal is, is quite apparent. And I love how you frame this because again, what's the end game, this formation, this ethical formation to love, know, and serve God, and it's so. It's more than just again platitudes on a a school website about the things we do. This is that these are real world, practical, tangible. And I think again about just comparisons of just where so many of our graduates are compared to just the general uh, mass of human teenagers that are kind of graduating generic schools. It's a lot like those guys showing up on your ship. They are they don't know who they are and they don't know where they want to go. If you can get those things answered. Uh, you can go a long way because adaptability, as you're talking about, is is absolutely preeminent right now. We don't know what's ahead. We don't know how we're going to flex, change, solve problems, keep a cool head, stay grounded in Christ. Like these are basic things, but they are they are they are not uh, typical uh, by any stretch in the culture today. So I commend what you're doing, and I love how you've you've adapted uh, <laughs> wisdom well, from Davies, the seas. Yeah,
1: yeah. Let me thank you because I have listened to every. Basecamp camp live podcast that you've created. And the reason I do it is so much of the administration of school, where it's school board administrators or headmaster is good ideas. Where can I go find good ideas that I can use in my school? And, and I have found more good ideas coming from base camp than any other spot. Uh, things from Monica Watley, writing Shaping, uh, having our whole faculty read that and inviting her to come talk to Keith McCurdy, having him come talk to us, to many others. This is, I look to you for good ideas and you deliver, so thank
0: you. Wow, well that's that's quite an, I'm honored to hear that and glad to be in, be a part of this uh, conversation, Ralph. Thank you for all you're doing. I wouldn't have much to interview if it weren't for leaders like yourself, so it's definitely a win-win and we're grateful for you being on here and love to have you back. I suspect there are a few more amazing stories you have uh, that we haven't heard yet from time on the sea. So uh, Ralph, thank you so much. Blessings to you and your, your team there at Westminster Academy and look forward to having you back on. Thank you, Davies. Hey, Basecamp Live listeners. Thank you again for listening to this episode and for your faithful support and encouragement for going on four years of podcasting. It was so good to meet many of you in person this summer at the ACCS and SCL conferences, and I always appreciate getting your emails. Reach out to me. Let me know where you're listening from, what's on your mind. You can get to me at info at Basecamp Live. Com. This fall is going to be an exciting time for Basecamp Live with some new formats and updates coming to the show. We are also grateful for the number of individuals and organizations who partner with us. So a quick shout out to these groups who I know personally, Their leaders and the quality of the resources that they provide both to individuals and to schools. First of all, the focus group. If you're running a capital campaign or working on a major donor development project, they are accomplished, skilled, and ready to serve you. Secondly, Classical Academic Press. Chris Perrin and his team continue to build a wealth of curriculum and training materials for your classical Christian education, whether you're teaching at home or at school. Thirdly, Scola Inbound Marketing. Their proven model is helping schools attract and keep new families, a value to any school. And then fourthly, the CLT or Classic Learning Test. Jeremy Tate and his team provide students with an alternative standardized test that is a much better way for students to demonstrate their knowledge and abilities. As we know, the SAT and ACT are being set aside by so many colleges and universities. So thank you so much for these resources and and options that are given to us by these great sponsors. Finally, again, let us know where you're listening from, info at basecamplive.com. We'll connect with you again on our next episode. Thanks again for listening.